0: gonna say it, but somebody should. Let's talk about tune time, let's talk about bum wine, yeah, yeah, asking the questions that nobody should. Like who are the bone thugs and are they in harmony? Your head. Hey everybody, welcome to a podcast. Um, I just put a post up on the Helpful Snowman Patreon asking what uh, subscribers would like next year. So in the last, in the last, in the past, uh, we've done uh, print newsletters. So I've put out a print newsletter with, uh, you know, stuff, just stuff that I'm I'm not doing elsewhere in addition to uh, a monthly bonus episode. Um, which at, you know, the time when I launched this would be like five episodes per month instead of four. And now some months comes close to doubling the number of podcasts you get. So in, in a way, the Patreon is more valuable than ever. Um, but anyway, it was a print newsletter. So it gets mailed to your house because I was like, yeah, this is kind of unique and not very costly. Um, but I was like, I don't know, would people rather have a print newsletter or would they rather have, like, an occasional little piece of merch or something? Um, what, w- what would people actually want if they donated? So, there you go. Um, the poll is out there for the very small number of you who use the Patreon. And for those of you who don't, well, you're freeloaders. What can I say? Um, I came up with a thing, like, a couple weeks ago. Because I was like, it's good to have a way to describe what this podcast is, right? And it's not just a, You know, I can't even get into that, that realm of like, well, it's just a couple of white guys shooting shit. Because there aren't a couple of guys. There's me. Occasionally, there's another one besides me. But most of the times, it's just me just doing this. But here's what I decided... Anyone else who does a podcast of this type out there, which is like really unthemed, you know, it just changes theme every episode, sometimes mid episode. Um, what I decided is uh to start talking about this podcast and comparing it to Harvey P. Carr's American Splendor, which, if you don't know, it's a comic that he wrote and didn't illustrate. Um, Robert Crumb was one of probably his more famous illustrators, but, you know, the illustration duties passed from person to person. And most of American Splendor was very, like, um... I don't know, plain? It wasn't like, you know... Uh... Boy. It wasn't like... Okay, obviously it wasn't a comic that was like, uh, you know, um, superheroes and shit, right? Um okay, here's I found a one page comic. Maybe I'll be able to read this. Uh so this is a one page comic, which is a not unusual thing, right? Or it's six pages. And it's called How I Quit Collecting Records and Put Out a Comic Book with the Money I Saved. Story by Harvey Picar, art by R. R. Crum. And it's just basically Harvey Picar talking to the reader. Ever since I was a kid, it seems I collected something. Panel 2. At one time, it was comi- comics, then magazines, and books about sports. Panel 3. Then when I was 16, I started collecting jazz records. Now, panel 4 is slightly different. He's listening to a record. At first, and for a long time, it was a healthy thing to do. Next panel. I love jazz and listen to it e- closely and analytically. Sorry, this is small, so it's hard for me to see. Oh, here's a, here's a magnifying glass. Oh, sign in. Fuck you. Yeah. For a long time, I collected on a, in a rational way. I only bought records that I enjoyed listening to and or that had a great deal of historical significance. Anyway, so he's just talking about his record collecting and what that was like for him. I, mundane, you know, very plain spoken, very just sort of normal story. Uh, not really outrageously out there. Now, I loved American Splendor and do love American Splendor. And it's like the thing is, you gotta, you gotta like read a big chunk of them. You know, you gotta get one of the books that collects a bunch of the different stories. And you start to realize, like, as you read these, you're getting a picture of a person, right? You're getting like a portrait of an entire man by reading all these sort of. Uh, disconnected comics, and uh, it it turns into this sort of art project, and you know it it does ask interesting artsy questions because it's like does a a piece of art have to be about something? Does it have to have a goal? You know, does it have to have a memorable story? And it's almost like. You know, I don't think many fans of American Splendor are like, oh, I particularly love this story or that story. I think they're more like, I just love the the thing, the general sense, uh, the emotion I feel about the thing in general, as opposed to, like, specific moments or clippings or whatever. And so that's what I've decided to start saying is the appeal of this podcast. It's not really about doing good shows, or, uh, you know, memorable things, or anything like that. It's, it's an extended art project, and, you know, I'm sorry if you're not artistic enough to understand that, but the idea is that you're getting a portrait of an artist as a not-so-young man, but, you know, you get, like, a general vibe over time, right? And it's like, these are little stories from my life or things that I think about, But they're not necessarily, uh, you know, outrageous big stories all the time or even frequently. Uh, A lot of times it's like uh, just a thing that happened to me. So there you go. I've decided that this is the American splendor of podcasts. And, you know, it's like one sort of curmudgeonly weirdo just sort of doing this thing that will probably not be very popular until... Either he's dead or very shortly before he's dead. Almost seemingly like this person just has a weird compulsion that should probably be diagnosed to make things. Um, also, in the movie, he would maybe be played by Paul Giamatti. I don't know who Paul Giamatti is, who's like 20 years younger. But uh, yeah, if they just want to have me be played by Paul Giamatti, that's fine. I'm okay with that. I mean, from a look standpoint, it's not my favorite, but uh, you know, just as a thing, as an actor, I would be like, "Well, okay, I guess, you know, it's probably in some ways better and in some ways worse than be playing being played by like Harry Styles, who I gather is not a good actor." Um, you're like, "Well, he's handsome, he's charismatic, but man, he sucks." And then you're like, well, Paul Giamatti is not handsome, but he is charismatic, and man, is he good. He's fucking John Adams or something. Which, by the way, I was like, well, that seems pretty easy. You play John Adams in a movie, or, you know, like Daniel Day-Lewis was Abraham Lincoln. And everyone's like, it's an amazing portrayal. And I was like, well, it's not like some, you know, Abraham Lincoln's college roommate's going to be like, that's nothing like what he was like. It's much harder to play someone who's still alive if you ask me. I mean, maybe with the exception of when Jamie Foxx was Ray Charles cuz it's like well that dude can't see. So I guess he, you know, there's an element missing in uh, Ray Charles's evaluation of Jamie Foxx's performance. But whatever. Um you know, like I could play Abraham Lincoln and just be like, "Hey, what's up? I'm Abraham Lincoln." Uh, this is how I talk. This is how Abraham Lincoln talks. And who's going to say no to that? Anyone who argues with that performance, I'd be like, were you there? I mean, yes, it does seem unlikely that Abraham Lincoln talks exactly like me. But, you know, my family's from Chicago. He's from Illinois, right? Landa Lincoln. So, uh, it's possible. Perhaps my interpretation is better than Daniel Day-Lewis's. You know what I mean? Maybe, uh, you know, the, the hat was just something some goofy sketch artist drew. Or like if he had a photograph with the hat, it was just happened to be there. And they were like, this is a fun hat. Be like if I took one with a party hat, and then a hundred years from now someone's playing me, and Paul Giamatti is playing me in a movie. Because he has access to like Hollywood celebrity medicine, longevity shit. He's playing me in a movie, and he's, like, wearing a fucking party hat. Because it's like, well, apparently that's what he wore. So, uh, when you're telling people about this show, just tell them, like, have you ever read American Splendor? Then talk about how great American Splendor is and how interesting it is and blah, blah, blah. And then just return to this podcast by saying, it's kind of like that, period. That way, the person you're talking to will kind of lose track of the fact that you didn't really describe the podcast at all and instead describe this other far superior art thing. And, uh, you know, by the time they realize they've been bamboozled, it'll be too late. So that's how I would prefer for all of you who talk up this podcast to talk it up. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess first step, I would prefer that you talk it up. I don't know that anyone's doing that. But second step is, uh, hey, if you're going to talk it up, try it this way. Let's try this. Fuck it. We've tried a lot of things. None of them worked. So let's try another thing. Uh, okay. I came across on Twitter something pretty interesting, which was a summary of a book from the book series Animorphs by K.A. Applegate, which you might remember from childhood if you were I don't know, like an 80s, 90s kid. They came out, let's see, starting in 96. So, like, I think I was just probably a little too old for them. Plus, you know, I it was reading. So I obviously wasn't going to do that. Um, but the idea is kids can turn into animals. And they do this to fight aliens or something. Well, I have the summary here. Um, I just... I'll kind of like skip ahead and then come back. The reason that uh, that I brought this up and thought it was interesting was because someone on Twitter was like, there is an Animorphs book where uh, the Animorphs travel around in time and at some point kill Hitler. And I was like, really? That's a thing? And so, you know, I retweeted it immediately and then was like, I should see if that's a real thing. And sure enough, it was a real thing. And I was like... How come nobody has told me about this? And then I started looking at some other Animorphs books and was like, there's some really weird shit in these books. Now, it seems like maybe what happened was, so the original writer was K.A. Applegate. K.A. Applegate wrote these, and then they started being ghostwritten. And I think the ghostwriting is where things, like, really went off the rails. Um, I don't know if it's because, you know... They didn't have the vision that K.A. Applegate had or something. Um, but, you know, long story short, it was like, well, look, when you push the Hitler button, you're you're going in a direction, right? You're kind of saying, like, either, either the thing that you're doing is about to peak, uh, like this show does whenever we talk about Hitler, or the thing you're doing is like... Uh, Jumping the shark in a spectacular way, you know, jumping the Hitler mustachioed shark and uh will never really land on the other side. You know, you jump the shark and then the other side is a pit, and you just endlessly fall uh and never recover and uh you know i i in a weird way, I respect it because it's like. There's something very appealing to me about, like, fucked-up weird shit being in, like, a series of books for children. I mean, this is really probably a teen book series. Um, but in 1996, that wasn't a thing. You know, this is a thi- uh, a period of time that I think is going to be lost to history. But I'm intimately familiar with it because I was working in libraries at the time. Which is, uh, there was a time when a teen book teen books weren't what they are today now teen books today i think they got a lot of popularity because you know they had twilight hunger games i think harry potter sort of bridged the gap between children's and teens you know and the later ones were maybe more like a teen book and less like a children's book um all that you know all kinds of shit Lots of shit, you know, from teen book area has been turned into movies and TV. And, you know, the teen book thing has just sort of become... It's sort of its own thing. And I couldn't tell you exactly what separates a teen book from uh, a quote-unquote adult book, other than, like, it the the protagonist is usually a teenager. That seems to be the main thing that I think is, like, your first stop on, like, the the uh, line of, is this a teen book or an adult book? The first thing is usually, well, does it star a teenager? But back in the day, like, and when I say back in the day, I'm talking about, like, 2005. So, like, I started at the library in 2004, and we had a teen book section, but it was, like, uh, it would be like a largish, but you know, not outrageous sized individual's home library. It was small. I mean, there were two big bookshelves. Um, they were very tall, but not very wide. And it was like they were double sided. And that was how many teen books we had. And now I would say we have, fuck, six or seven times as much, um, just judging by the space. And the thing is, too, the teen books that were in there were like, uh, you know, The Chocolate War, The Giver. A lot of it was stuff you would read in school. There was also classics were sometimes shelved in the teen area. So you'd have like Shakespeare or The Grapes of Wrath or something because it's like, well, kids are going to have to read this in school. So I guess we'll put it here, which was always an interesting thing that libraries did. It was like, this is going to be assigned in class. So we'll put it here. And I was like, what high school teacher is assigning a book and then just being like, I don't know how you're going to get this book. You're on your own. Like, is that a thing? That doesn't seem like a thing to me. I will say this though, being an English major in college, man, does that save you a lot of book money (laughs) when the books you're buying are like books that regular ass people read and not textbooks. It's, like, impossible for anyone to control the market. So, you know, that kind of works out. But anyway, I think if... And, you know, so Animorphs would have been out during this time. Um, Actually, before this time. And so I think that they probably would have been teen books if they had been, like, released, you know, 10 years later. 2006 instead of 96. 96. I do see they had like a, uh, a reissue from 2011 to 2012. And that's my guess is that, you know, at that time it was like, oh, uh, teen series are really popular. What do we have the rights to? Let's recrank these out, maybe put some different covers on them, you know, that aren't so goofy looking um, and we'll be good. But, you know, these are like, these are like classic scholastic book fair, fair, if you will. Um, Let me read you... uh, I'll read you the intro Wikipedia portion and then the plot summary. Um, Animorphs is a science fiction fantasy series of children's books written by Catherine Applegate and her husband, Michael Grant, working together under the name K.A. Applegate. How does Grant fit into K.A.? Catherine Applegate Applegate. What? And published by Scholastic. It is told in the first person... That's a really... Thank God I know that now. With all six main characters taking turns narrating the books through their own perspectives. Horror, war, dehumanization, sanity, morality, innocence, leadership, freedom, family, and growing up are the core themes of the series. You know, let's, like, look at these for a second. Uh, family and growing up. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Morality. Mm, okay. You know, I think uh, a lot of these sorts of series um children's series we'll talk about morality in some fashion right innocence uh yeah you know that's where that's where we start getting into a, well i guess you lost your innocence that time you killed hitler freedom uh whatever leadership okay that seems like a kid's thing Sanity, (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-oh, now now things are getting a little rougher, Uh, horror, war, and dehumanization. (laughs) Now, dehumanization is kind of an interesting one here, because I guess, to be fair to the series, I mean, if it's kids turning into animals, and my understanding is, like, to some extent, I read one that we're not going to go over here, but... (laughs) the kids some of the kids turned into some kind of like a horrible centipede thing uh that craves h- human flesh and you know so was like trying to resist the urge to eat the human flesh of his crush basically and uh, yeah this is the kind of thing that happens in here um so if that's what we're talking about as dehumanization that I could get get behind, because it's sort of like, okay, yeah, I guess that's pretty literally dehumanization. But I don't know if that's what we're talking about. Published between June 96 and May 01, the series consists of 54 books, Jesus Christ, and includes 10 companion books, eight of which fit into the series' continuity, and two that are game books not fitting into the continuity. I guess those are probably like a choose-your-own-adventure or something. Adapted into television series and an audiobook. Oh my god. The series has also been adapted to audiobook form, as well as a series of graphic novels starting in 2020. So it just started getting uh, adapted into audiobook. That's crazy. Uh, Plot summary. The story revolves around five humans, Jake, Marco, Cassie, Rachel, and Tobias, and one alien, Ax ish Nickname Axe. Thank you. Uh, You know, when you write these articles, do it like this. And one alien acts, parentheses, a nickname for, and then do this full nonsense name. Who obtain the ability to transform into any animal they touch. Um, okay, I didn't realize you had to touch the animal. That kind of makes that difficult. I wonder if you like, okay, so I can touch this animal. Do I turn into it right now? Or it's like any animal I touch at any point, I can then turn into at will so like i could have one wild romp at the zoo you know one get charged one time for like breaking and entering at the zoo and just i touched all the animals and they're like what is the crime is this a crime how does this work um naming themselves animorphs a port mentor of animal morphers thank you very much They use their ability to battle a secret alien infiltration of Earth by a parasitic race of aliens resembling large slugs called Yerks that can take any living creatures as a host by entering and merging with their brain through the ear canal. Gross. The Animorphs fight as a guerrilla force against the Yerks, who are led by Visser Three. Throughout the series, the Animorphs carefully protect their identities. The Yerks assume that the Animorphs are a strike force sent by the Andalites, the alien race to which Axe belongs that created the transformation technology to prevent them from conquering Earth. To, to protect their families from Yurk reprisals, the Animorphs maintain this facade. I see. Um, kind of weird. Okay, like, here's my big question. So, if animals can defeat these aliens, do we need the Animorphs or do we just need to, like, turn some fucking, I don't know, gorillas loose on them? We can have a literal gorilla unit. Though the animorphs can assume the form of any animal they touch to acquire the DNA, there are several limitations to the ability. The most vital is that they cannot stay in animal form for more than two hours, or they will be unable to return to human form, and the morphs become permanent. Hmm. That would be a problem, I think, if you turned into a cat. Because the chances that you would get speepy, and then... Take a two-hour nap and then be like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Um, Others include having to demorph back to human in between morphs, only tight clothing being able to be carried over with a morph. (laughs) What? Uh, You can continue to wear clothing as long as it's tight. How does that work? Um... And having to consistently maintain concentration during a morph to prevent the animal's natural instincts from overwhelming their human intellect. Dehumanization, if you will. A benefit to morphing is that it allows the team to heal any superficial non-genetic injuries sustained as a human or in a morph. Also, while in morph, they can telepathically communicate with anyone nearby in what they call thought speak. So unfortunately, if you got a COVID vaccine and it rewrote your DNA, you couldn't can't squirrel transform your way out of this one, buddy. I think K.A. Applegate saw what was coming and was, like, making a point. Um, I do want to read this, too. This is the development. Because uh, I'm fascinated by that. In an interview with Publishers Weekly, Applegate talked about the source of inspiration and realization for the Animorph series. I grew up loving animals and lived with the usual suburban menagerie of dogs, cats, and gerbils, she said. I really wanted to find a way to get kids into the heads of various species and decided that a science fiction premise was the way to do this. I mean, yes, okay. I'm with you, Applegate, on on part of this, and like, it makes sense, and it's like, eh, kids like animals. This is interesting. The whole, like, part where they're like a gorilla force fighting aliens is kind of weird. But alright. <laughs> you know. Applegate tried to accurately depict the various animals and did research such as visiting a raptor center where they rehabilitate injured birds. Quote, when Tobias becomes a hawk, I want the reader to see the world as a hawk might see it, to soar on the warm breezes and hurtle toward the ground to make a kill, she said. <laughs> okay. To develop the characters for Animorphs, Applegate would go through teenage magazines such as YM and Seventeen, both of which are referenced in the books when describing Rachel, cutting out pictures and piecing them together to get an idea of what sort of children the Animorphs would look like. Animorphs started in an... In, Applegate sta- stated in an interview online that many of the names for her alien creatures, races, and locations are actually scrambled names of local street signs or companies that she happens to notice. For instance, the word not Knothlet was just derived from the hotel name Hilton. Okay. In another... In, I mean... You can't. Don't say that. Don't tell me that Nothlet is Hilton. That kills the magic. In another interview, Applegate stated that she originally wanted the alien Andalite to have a more standard and familiar forms, but was told by Scholastic to be more creative with the designs, which led her to giving them such a distinct look. According to the Anabase, Applegate did not make up the titles for the Animorphs' books. It was up to the scholastic editors to create the titles for the books based on the outlines provided by the author, having so- to select a word that not only fit the book's storyline, but sounded good with the characteristic, the preface. <laughs> One of the... Okay, because, like, these are called, like, the ones we're going to look at are called The Separation, The Solution, The Hidden, The Invasion. According to... Uh, oh, sorry. I already did this. One of the author's favorite books, The Lord of the Rings, lent several words and images to Animorphs. The Sindarin plural word for orc, which is Y-R-C-H, became yirk. The flaming red eye of Sauron inspired the Krayak, and Axe's middle name, Esgaroth, is based on a town in the books called Esa- Esgaroth. The human name of Axe's brother, Elfangor, is Alan Fangor. And his last name is in reference to the Fangor region of... The, okay, nerd shit. Applegate's writing was inspired by her family. All books after The Unknown were dedicated to Applegate's child, Jake, as well as her husband co-writer, Michael. Um, can you be the co-writer of a book and have it dedicated to you? that doesn't seem correct. I don't think that we've decided that that's just fine. Her daughter was born premature in 97, and Applegate worked on the Animorph series at night in the lobby of the hospital where she was in neonatal intensive care. NIC. <laughs> um, I just wanted to go down and see if there was like any, you know, controversy or anything, and there's not. Okay, well let's let's look at some of the titles. I think the invasion is the first one. So I, I put this one in here because I was like, well, I guess this this will get us going. Young teenagers Jake and Marco leave the mall one evening. On the way out, they meet Rachel and Cassie, who are together, and Tobias, all children from their school, and decide to walk home together. While taking a shortcut through an abandoned construction site, an alien spacecraft lands nearby. The badly injured alien pilot, an Andalite named Prince Elfangor, emerges from the ship and explains to the children that the Earth is being invaded in secret by a race of aliens called the Yerks, a slug-like parasitic species who infest humans through their ear canals and take complete control of the human's body, turning them into what is called a controller. Shouldn't they be called a controlled? Okay. The human controllers are still self-aware, but the Yerks in their heads has complete control over their body and what they say. Alfangor tells that This is Get Out. This is Get Out. Animorphs uh, pioneered this idea. Jordan Peele stole it. Oh my god. This is... uh, Are animals a culture? Was this cultural appropriation? From YM Magazine. Let's see. Elfangor tells them that the Andalite fleet has been defeated, and more Andalites will not come to Earth for a year or more, and by then, Earth will be already completely taken over. To combat the Yerks, he gives the humans morphing ability, the power to become any creature they touch by absorbing the creature's DNA. Elfangor warns them to never stay beyond two hours in a morph. I wonder if he says, two of your Earth hours, or they will be trapped in that form forever. The Yerks, led by Visser Three, arrive to kill Elfangor and eliminate all traces of him in his ship. The humans hide and watch, but are discovered and chased by the Yerks. The group escapes shaken, but more or less unhurt. More or less unhurt. Um, A lot happened. This is like a third of the description, and I was like, Jesus Christ. The next morning, Tobias visits Jake and informs him that the previous night was not just a dream. He had already morphed into his pet cat. Oh, damn. Just what I was afraid of. Jake is skeptical, but then acquires and morphs his dog, Homer acquires his dog, pets his dog? Is that what we mean? The five kids meet at Cassie's farm, (laughs) convenient, where a police officer arrives and informs them that a group of teenagers were sighted setting off fireworks in the abandoned construction site the previous night. He asks if they know anything about it, and the five of them realize that the police officer is a controller. Later that day, Jake's older brother, Tom, expresses a similar interest in the teenagers at the construction site and presses Jake for information. Marco realizes, much to Jake's anger, anger, that Tom is also a controller. Tom invites Jake and Marco to a meeting of a local community club called The Sharing, which the teens quickly determine is a front for the Yerks to acquire new hosts. They also discover that their assistant principal, Mr. Chapman, is the leader of The Sharing and a human controller. Okay, two amazing things so far. One, I approve of the, uh, what seems to be... K.A. Applegate, warning children about accidentally joining a cult. Um, the sharing sure sounds like a cult. and uh, Or a, the name of a restaurant that would be run by a cult. And uh, I love that it's like the assistant principal is like the main bad guy because you're like, of course it is. I knew it. Like, that is another thing that would appeal to a kid because you'd be like, I knew that asshole was going to be... <laughs> was going to be the, you know, the evil head of an alien race or something. The next day, Jake morphs into a green anole lizard to spy on Chapman and discovers that there is an entrance to the Yerk Pool, a large underground control center where the Yerks can feed and recuperate in their school. (laughs) The teenagers, newly christened as Animorphs by Marco, head to the gardens, a large zoo, and uh, I hope that that's in the book. And it's like, what should we call ourselves? Team Strike Force? Team Discovery Channel? No. How about Animorphs? And, you know, I, in my fantasy version of this, he's like, I've been calling us Animorphs, and the rest of them are just like, oh, God damn it. I wish this dork hadn't been with us when we got these powers. We don't need to call ourselves a thing. It's like that weird thing that, like, the Justice League does, and they're like, let's call ourselves the Justice League. And you're like, I mean, or you could just be like, uh, we're just the same superheroes we are, but sometimes we work together. And just be like, I'll call, you know, let's give our phone number to the president on this red phone. And if he's like, well, who should I ask for when I call him? It's like, look, whoever picks up the fucking phone, that's who you need to talk to. Doesn't matter. You don't need to be like, is Mr. So-and-so in? Uh, let's see. That evening, they decide to infiltrate the Yerk pool in order to rescue Tom, but find that Cassie has been kidnapped by the policeman controller. With no time to plan a strategy, the four remaining Animorphs head into the Yerk pool. They manage to rescue Cassie, but find themselves outnumbered and outgunned by Visser Three and his Yerks. Jake, Rachel, Marco, and Cassie barely escape, along with a woman who is free. During the escape, the policeman controller is killed. Tobias is able to escape later, but has stayed in Morph too long and gets stuck in Morph as a red-tailed hawk. The Animorphs fail to rescue Tom, and Jake promises to keep fighting the Yurks until the Andalites arrive. (laughs) Now there's, like, inconsistencies here. Um, Oh, here's everything that they morph into. Uh, Jake is Golden Retriever, Green Anole, and Siberian Tiger. Siberian Tiger seems like an outlier there. Rachel only morphs into an elephant. Tobias, a cat and a red-tailed hawk, which he gets stuck in. Cassie only morphs into a horse, and that tracks. You know if a group of, like, five kids uh, got animal morphing powers, the chances of there being a horse girl in that group seem excellent. And that she would immediately be like, I am going to find a horse right now. And Marco, silverback gorilla. See, now Marco, I don't know how he touched a silverback gorilla. But however he did it, um, that's that's using your noggin. I mean, it's kind of not using your noggin, I guess, because you touched a silverback gorilla, which seems like a risky thing to do. But you... Uh, you can now be a silverback gorilla, which seems like a, a good choice of an animal to be if you're going to, like, fight a war, basically. Let's see what these inconsistencies are. Jake uses thought speak while in human form from early on in the book, thinking at Tobias, who is in Catmorph, but in subsequent books it is stated that this is impossible. This is because K.A. Applegate changed her mind about this, but forgot to correct the scene. Later editions in the audiobook corrected the mistake. I'll Boo. I don't I don't like that. Leave it in, leave it as is. Don't go don't go back and fucking George Lucas this shit. When talking to Elfangor, Visser Three's dialogue gives the impression that the two have never met, but the Andelite Chronicles reveals that in reality Elfangor was indirectly responsible for Vir Three acquiring his current host, although this implied lack of knowledge could have simply been Vissur Three's attempt to taunt Elfangor with how little he has accomplished in his struggle against Visser (laughs) 3. That sounds like, all right, fan theory. You know, I do have some uh, like and respect for fan fandoms that are like, how can I make up a way that this makes sense? Like, I like that. I like when it's not like, this is stupid and doesn't make sense. And instead they're like, "Uh, what kind of mental gymnastics could I do to make this work? When Tobias comes over to Jake's house, he said that when he morphed, his cat freaked out and scratched him, and he still had the scratches, even though morphing heals any injury. They discover this later when acquiring injured animals at the wildlife rehabilitation clinic. Ah, okay. So that's probably how they touch these animals, right? You go to, like, the clinic where they're knocked out or something, break in, touch a gorilla, leave. All right, let's let's look at some of these other plots and see if we can... uh, find anything interesting. Let's see. Let's try and go in order. So this is 32. The Separation. On a field trip to the beach, Rachel, Rachel 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 is exploring tide pools when she loses an earring in the water. Wishing to get it back, she comes across a starfish, acquires it, and morphs into it retrieving the earring. <laughs> Unfortunately, before she can demorph, a child chops her in half. Thanks to the regenerate properties of Starfish, Rachel does not die. Instead, in the shock of being sliced in two, both halves demorph, resulting in two Rachels, Mean Rachel and Nice Rachel. Let's just stop right here. This is an A-plus intro. I am 100% behind this one. Oh my god. I morphed into a starfish, a child chopped me in half for some reason, I regenerated, then I morphed back, but now there's evil and good me. Amazing. What a, what, what a convoluted and incredible way to get to an evil twin story. Mean Rachel is violent, aggressive, and despises all forms of weakness. Weakness including most feelings and any attitudes towards enemies other than homicidal hatred. <laughs> She is totally incapable of planning ahead, making her useless in anything other than a direct combat situation, and believes that she is always right. This leads her to try to kill Marco and Jake and take control of the Animorphs. In contrast, Nice Rachel is totally passive, easily frightened, and is too scared to morph. She cannot fight, making herself a liability in battle, although she is good at making plans. Both Rachels are actively dangerous towards the secrecy and long-term survival of the Animorphs, and the rest of the Animorphs must find a way to combine them back into normal Rachel. Yeah, how would you do that? Is there any animal that two combine into one, like she could be a parasite that goes in or something? Also would mean, mean Rachel probably wouldn't be up for that, right? Wouldn't she be like, fuck you, like you're weak, I don't want to be part of you anymore. Jake convinces Nice Rachel to come with him to follow a yerk truck. It turns out to be a trap, and Jake and Nice Rachel are put in boxes to await the arrival of Visser 3. Mean Rachel follows them in an attempt to kill Jake and Nice Rachel. (laughs) She's like, well, they've been trapped. They're going to go to their enemy, but I got to kill them. Jake pretends to be dead, forcing Mean and Nice Rachel to work together in order to escape the trap. Nice Rachel makes the plan... And Mean Rachel actually does it, flying into Visser 3's ear canal while morphed and threatening to demorph, killing both of them. All three escape unharmed. So let's just rewind for a second. Uh, Mean Rachel flies into this guy's ear, I assume while a cockroach? Oh, here we go. Uh, Housefly. So she morphs into a housefly, flies into this guy's ear, and is like, I'll demorph, turn into a human, explode your head, unless you let us go. That's fucked up. <laughs> That's really fucked up. Uh, after they esca- <laughs> escape safely, Nice and Mean Rachel finally realize that they need to be together to work well, and Erek King helps make them back into one whole Rachel again by morphing into each other while touching. After Rachel has returned to normal, she realizes that it is both sides of her personality that make her who she is and vows to try to not become either of the two. I mean, okay, in general, this seems like a kid's book, right? Like, kind of learning this thing about, like, you have different aspects of your personality and, uh, you know, you're, you're at your best when you're kind of both things, right? But uh, it seems to go a long way. <laughs> Also, there's pictures of these kids on the covers, and maybe they're the kids who are in the Nickelodeon show. But uh, I wonder, like, the kids who are on these, if they're like, I'm the kid from the Animal's cover. Ask me anything. Okay, this is uh, actually number 22, The Solution. After having a bizarre dream, Rachel is woken by Axe, who explains Jake's express orders to summon her. That decision bothers her, but her qualms are silenced when Axe breaks her the news of Tobias's probable death. Rachel is willing to do what Jake expected her to do. They first fly... Who wrote this summary? This is bad. They first fly to the mall and try to help Jake, only to be ambushed by David and his lion morph. Okay, I'm not reading. This is too long. Um, let's try the hidden. Number 39. This is very short. The Yerkes repair downed Helmicron ship and use its sensors to track the Escaphil device and the anamorph's morphing abilities. Cassie is forced to relocate the Escaphil device. During the process, a cape buffalo and an ant inadvertently gain the morphing ability. <laughs> so, one buffalo and one ant. The buffalo morphs Chapman and begins to learn speech, <laughs> and the ant morphs Cassie. Okay, so by morphs, it means turns into. So the buffalo and the ant turn into humans. Cassie kills the ant when it demorphs, and near the end of the book, the buffalo is killed by a dracon beam. However, the anamorphs come up with a plan similar to the Andalites' gift, in which Cassie morphs a humpback whale in midair to destroy the helicopter carrying the Helmicron ship. Let me just read that again. Uh, Cassie morphs a humpback whale in midair to destroy the helicopter carrying the helm across ship. So as in the opening of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, a humpback whale is falling through the air, uh, and in this case, in order to crush a uh, (laughs) a helicopter. (laughs) But also, uh, a buffalo turns into a person... Okay, so imagine this. An ant gains this power, turns into you, and then, you know, (laughs) that's the brain of an ant. I don't know what the fuck an ant would do in a human's body, but I can't... It would have to be horrifying, right? Like, trying to watch the ant, I don't know, cram its head into an anthill. And then once it turns back into an ant, you're just like, I have to kill it. That's the only right thing to do, right? But, I mean, what other animals is an ant going to touch and like okay an ant can turn into a person but is it going to can it like does it know how to do that or does it just what what's going on with that but that's fucked up alright here's the one that launched this entire idea uh, Elfangor's Secret an actor named John Berryman discovers which is by the way the name of a poet because I was like that's a familiar name discovers the time matrix buried at the abandoned construction site. Uh, by the way, this is like all hyperlinked with stuff, because it's like the abandoned construction site is a thing. The time matrix is a thing. John Berryman is a thing on this wiki. Sometime after that, he is infested by the Yerk formerly known as Visser Four, who had been demoted for failing to conquer Lyra for the Yerk Empire. Once in possession of Berryman's body, the Yerk discovers that his host body was in possession of the Time Matrix and uses it to rewrite Earth's history in order to facilitate his conquest and become the new Visser One. So far, so good. Using the Time Matrix, Visser Four creates a timeline in which modern-day Earth still practices slavery. <laughs> oh, fuck. With Cassie being a radical slave owner who opposes war. <laughs> Oh, God. Tobias dating Melissa Chapman, who takes Rachel's place in the group since Rachel was sent to a camp to re-educate and remold her into a submissive as she was deemed too bold and aggressive for a female. (laughs) Jake becomes a patriot of the empire with neo-Nazi tendencies, hell-bent on being referred to as supreme leader, while Marco is a friendless cynic whose mother is still alive and lives with him. The Drode interferes, restoring their original timeline personalities and replacing Melissa with Rachel, offering them the chance to pursue Visser 4, retrieve the Time Matrix, and undo the damage, albeit at the cost of one of their lives. He reveals that Visser 4 having the Time Matrix is technically their fault since their actions are what led to the Yerk's failure to gain control over the Lyrin continent, which in turn led to him getting Barryman as a host. Margo and Cassie are reluctant since they know that the life Krayak would take as payment would be Jake's since Krayak holds Jake responsible for the destruction of the Howlers and the survival of the Esquirt race. So let's let's just uh, put this in perspective. Um, They change the timeline and this guy's like, "Okay, first of all, slavery is still a thing. And one of the Animorphs is a, uh, you know, radical slave owner who opposes the war, which I assume is the war to end slavery. (laughs) That's fucked up. Um, And also, Jake is a neo-Nazi who is hell-bent on being referred to as supreme leader, basically who's becoming Hitler. And then Marco is a friendless cynic whose mother is still alive and lives with him. A hell of its own. <laughs> okay. And then, you know, they're like, by the way, uh, I know this reality is terrible. Kind of your fault. Just just in case we weren't clear. In order to silence Berryman, who is quoting William Shakespeare's Henry V, Vissar IV travels to 1415 in order to kill Henry V during the Battle of Agincourt. Um, okay. As I understand that sentence, what happened was uh, Berryman was saying was quoting Henry V. Visser 4 didn't like that, so he was like, I'm gonna go back in time and kill Henry V uh, in order to make sure that this you know, Shakespeare play never exists, and therefore I don't have to hear this bullshit. <laughs> this would be like, you know, if I was in middle school and I was like, this fucking Of Mice and Men is bullshit. I'm gonna travel back in time and kill John Steinbeck. And it's like, eh, what did why did you do that? Well, then I didn't have to read this book in school. Okay. I just, you know, I don't like having this quoted at me. So I'm going to go back and kill the real-life inspiration for the play. <laughs> that seems like the most realistic way. <laughs> As the Animorphs agree to chase the Eric, they are immediately transported to 15th century France. Marco realizes that the lice-ridden and pockmarked humans of the 15th century would make it easier to spot Visser Four's host body and manages to spot the Visser posing as an English archer. Okay, so they figure out it's him because he's not the only, like, disease-ridden, pockmarked person. Um, yikes. However, when attempting to kill Henry V with an arrow, the arrow is intercepted by Tobias, alerting the Visser to the fact that the Andalite bandits are chasing him. Marco, Rachel, and Cassie are nearly killed in the war among the English and the French – okay, there's a war between the English and the French? – but are saved by Tobias and Jake, with Tobias in Hork-Bajir-Morph and Jake having acquired and morphed one of the French war horses. Ax chases the fleeing visser through the air in his northern harrier morph, but is forced to demorph, igniting the wrath of pitchfork wielding citizens. Fair enough. Tobias and Jake come to his rescue, and Tobias and Ax storming in the church where the visser has fled. Tobias chases him to the bell tower, where is hidden the time matrix. But the former visser four escapes, fleeing to the Delaware crossing in Trenton, New Jersey. Oh God, I think we know where this is going. Visser IV arrives in Trenton in 1776, where he warns the British and Hessians about George Washington's ambush. George Washington's coming across that thing, that fucking river. I know you're not expecting it, but he is. There are going to be a lot of paintings of this shit if you guys don't, don't fuck him up. Fearing that the Yerk might be attempting to assassinate the father of their country, Jake orders the Animorphs to protect Washington at all costs. Jake and Marco, in their human forms, join one of the boats while Rachel and Tobias take to the air. Cassie electing to morph Dolphin and staying hidden in the Delaware River while Axe remains on standby in Andalite form. During the fight, Jake is shot in the head, destroying the back part of his head and instantly killing him. Enraged, Rachel takes command over the group and orders Axe to kill the Hessians. Although Axe protests that it was not their fault and they are not his enemies, Rachel pressures him to do his duty since this prince, since his prince was killed, Axe decapitates the Hessian commanding officer just as Visser Four time jumps once more. This time to 1805 at Cape Traf- Trafalgar. <laughs> okay, so they were like, "We got to f- fuck up these Hessians in animal form." but then a guy, one of them gets his brains blown out, and then they're like, let's kill these bastards. (laughs) Oh my god. The Animorphs end up in 19th century Spain, where Rachel, Marco, and Tobias chase the Visser. Rachel almost catches him in a chimpanzee morph, but she is blown in half by a cannonball and killed. Enraged, Tobias and Marco pursue him as he flees into the ship with Tobias ripping his ear off and axe joining them, although he manages to cause the ship to explode before escaping through time once again. Visser Four flees to Princeton University in 1934 where he plans to kill Albert Einstein. (laughs) This is fucking awesome, by the way. It's just like, I'm just going to go through and just fuck up time. You know what I mean? Like, screw it. However, his prior meddling in the timeline prevents Einstein from being at Princeton. (laughs) Additionally, his actions at the Delaware River Crossing prevented the United States from being formed, and so the United States is now a British territory with ties to France. The Animorphs also follow him to Princeton, where Tobias regroups with Cassie. There they come across a racist student who refers to Cassie as a runaway colored slave and uses a racial slur. Jesus. Cassie then morphs into a polar bear to turn white, uh, that's in quotes, and threatens him before Rachel, Marco, and Axe show up. Tobias is surprised that Rachel is alive and kisses her, while Axe theorizes that since the deal was that one of them had to die, the elemist most likely stipulated that only one could die, thereby making the other animorphs immortal for the rest of their journey through time. So what's-his-face got his brains blown out. So she got ripped in half by a cannonball, but she's still alive. Also, Cassie, who is perhaps black, I don't know, up till this point, but uh, someone calls her a racial slur and she turns into a polar bear to to turn white and be like, see, fuck you. (laughs) Which, by the way, I don't think you'd have to turn into a white bear to, uh, you know, really intimidate somebody who made fun of you in a racial way. Just, you know, you know what I mean? Like that, to... <laughs> my God. And now they're immortal, jumping through time. I do like that finally this guy's fucking with time. He was like, I'll go to Princeton in 1934. And then it's like, ah, eh, shit, everything's fucked up. Now I don't know where to go. Because, you know, this Uh, We the People book I stole from a high school in 2002 uh, is no longer nothing in here is right anymore. <laughs> Desperate to finish his agenda and ditch the anamorphs, the viscer travels to various destinations within seconds, hoping to lose his pursuers. Confident that he has lost them, he travels to Normandy in 1944, intent on warning the Nazi party about the Allied efforts on D Day. <laughs> oh my god. However, his prior actions have presented the Nazi party or the allies from existing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he is arrested by a German-French team, where Adolf Hitler is but a mere driver. He is arrested and taken away by the German-French troops, but Tobias and Cassie in Hork-Bajir and Wolfmorph launch an, atta- launch an attack on the convoy. Upon spotting Hitler, Tobias presses a Hork-Bajir blade against his throat, electing to kill him while cassie explains that this hitler is not the same hitler from their timeline the captain fires at tobias causing tobias to jerk his wrist blade reflexively slitting hitler's throat and killing him (laughs) cassie and tobias are then shot only to have the bullets and wounds disappear due to their newfound immortality Rachel, Marco, and Axe also arrive at this point, with the latter two having experienced the horrors of war on the shores of Normandy. <laughs> Rachel steals a hand grenade and drops it into one of the tanks, destroying it and killing the German-French squad while crippling Visser Four. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, this just really... This book started crazy and then, like, ramped it up to 11, right? I mean, just, like... It's Hitler. Oh, is this the same? And this isn't even like, you know, would you go back in time and kill baby Hitler? And, you know, I know some people are like, well, you know, baby Hitler hasn't done these things yet. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about the idea of just killing baby Hitler. This is literally an alternate universe Hitler that is not uh, the Fuhrer. You know what I mean? And there is no, like, uh, Nazi party. There's like a French-German alliance, which seems maybe not evil. And uh, (laughs) I'm a little confused about why there's no Axis, no allies, but there is still a D-Day, but whatever. I guess we had to have a D-Day so that the kids, these children could experience the horrors of war. (laughs) With Berryman's body crushed at the waist down, sure, Paralyzing him, the Yerk Yur- <laughs> escapes his body. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> With him being horribly mutilated, the Yerk escapes his body, although not before realizing that the Andalite bandits are mostly human. As he flees Berryman's ear, Tobias spots it and Marco throws it into a burning tank. Berryman relishes his freedom, praises the Animorphs for fighting against the Yerk Empire, although he admits he is aware he will die <laughs> from his injuries. The Animorphs discuss how to erase the timeline in order to bring Jake back. Yeah, okay, so this Berryman, the whole time, has been controlled by this Yerk. So he's just been sort of an unwilling unwilling participant, and he's been like, I've been going through time, I was trying to, like, kill George Washington, and then Einstein, and then save Hitler. Uh, I've just basically been an unwilling passenger on the worst things you could think to do. So maybe, you know, dying, he's like, well, I am dying, and that's not great. But after the life I've just had over the last couple days, you know, eh, maybe I'm fine with that. The Animorphs discuss how to erase the timeline in order to bring Jake back to life, and Axe responds that they would have to prevent Berryman from locating the time matrix to undo the altered events. We're getting very Terminator, Terminator here. Cassie then asks Berryman when and where his parents met, much to the shock of the Animorphs and Berryman, who realizes that he is about to be wiped from existence. Berryman accepts his fate, informing Cassie that his parents met at a certain location in San Francisco in 1967. The Animorphs travel to the 60s, appearing in front of two hippies, one of whom is Teresa Knowlton, Berryman's mother. By distracting her, they stop her from meeting Berryman's father and thus prevent Berryman's conception. With Berryman effectively wiped out of existence, the timeline is changed and the time matrix still remaining buried and undiscovered while the demoted viscer is given another host body. The timeline's erasure resurrects Jake and the Animorphs retain the memories of the altered timeline. (laughs) Well done. You know what? That's all I can say about K.A. Applegate. Well done. Um, I did just want to say there was this quote I found about uh, a morph. Someone's morphing into like a lobster. His arms had begun to split open and swell. His eyes were gone, replaced by little black BBs. Jake's face seemed to open up to split open into a complex mess of valves. I think I would have thrown up seeing that except that I also no longer had a mouth. <laughs> yes. Um wow. Um <clears throat> wow. Just I mean amazing, right? I got I what else is there to say about about this? Nothing. I think, you know, I think that this is kind of, I just, I'm like, you know, stymied as far as what, what else is there to say? I mean, so much shit happened. So much shit happened. Um, we had Nazis. We had killing Hitler. We had a guy getting his brains blown out. We had like magic animals killing Hessians. We had someone trying to kill Einstein. We had... A guy wiped from existence from, he's about to die, which I guess, you know, okay, like looking at it, I'm like, yes, I guess this sort of makes sense. Like he's about to die and therefore them wiping him from existence isn't really killing him. I mean, it just kills him much earlier before he existed. But, you know, in order to, I guess, save the timeline, that seems worth it. What still is kind of fucked up. And then at the end, the little sting of like, and they all still remember everything that happened. And you're like, Hmm, good. <laughs> glad, they, glad they can be haunted by these memories forever. Well, I think that's it for us today. I think, you know, that's, that's all I can handle, but I did. Uh, I wanted to go out on the Animorphs theme song. I feel like that's the most appropriate way to end this show today. So, uh, you know, without further ado, here it is. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. (laughs) t-shirt sucks. Look at Jimson! He's wearing a True Classic tee. It fits him tight in all the right places, but leaves the perfect amount of room in the front. God, I hate that guy. He looks so good in that shirt. He can basically do whatever the hell he wants around here. Jimson! Yeah, boss? You're a goddamn stud. Thanks, boss. True Classic is designed to enhance the male physique in all the right places. Right, Jimson? That's right, boss. I have strong arms, but also a little bit of a gut. But you wouldn't know because I...